cliffcentral.com. To do a long and complicated introduction for our next guest because he has been a part of South African political life since I can remember. And that's not a slight on his age because he hasn't changed at all well. in terms of his appearance. Tony Leon, former leader of the opposition, uh, who stood on the other side uh, of, of the, 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 the chamber in Parliament from Nelson Mandela. He was the, the leader then of the DP, then became the DA. And uh, he has done many, many incredible things in his life since then, including being in our, our ambassador to pretty much all of South America at one point. Um, and he's been in business for some time since then. And there's always lots of reasons to talk to Tony Leon, but I'm glad you're in Joburg for a change because this doesn't happen so often. It doesn't. I was just saying to you off air, Gareth, and thank you very much for having me on your show. What a pleasure. That's uh, because of COVID, I suppose, two positive consequences for the travel budget is we now have <laughs> Zoom and MS Teams. So whereas I would come here two or three times a month, I now come here every few months, if that. So that's a pity because I've got a lot of friends and a lot of uh, very good memories of Joburg. I, I lived here, for, well, I'm now in my mid-60s. So I lived most of my life in Joburg. We lived in Cape Town for the last 23 years. But this is still a very vibrant city. I mean, its physical degradation is very sad to you, see. You, you've noticed that? Oh, absolutely. No. Look, the only positive driving along Ravonia Road today is they've thoughtfully covered up the pothole or the crater, whatever it is, with a sort of yellow uh, uh, covering. So at least you don't, you know, break the axle of your car. But it does tell you something. And the home I'm staying in, in, in Joburg in the northern suburbs, the, the power station or substation keeps blowing up. So although the owners have very thoughtfully installed solar panels and done what they can to mitigate against load shedding, it's very hard to mitigate when the actual infrastructure literally blows yeah. up and yeah. it does this repeatedly but I, but I think this is a problem across the country uh, but but noticeably in the western cape it is less of a problem and for anyone to deny that is just <clears throat> childish i mean it's it's oh. it's like it's trying to um you know look over here but don't notice what your eyes are telling you i think that's exactly right um the, the western cape is much better in in all levels of administration governance and infrastructure mm. Where it has jurisdiction, of course. Yeah, things like police, they don't have jurisdiction. And ports, and that's the thing. Because as we, you know, as, as we've abnormalized or normalized the abnormal, should I say, with electricity, mm. we now have this catastrophe in our ports. But there's 7,000... 71,000 containers waiting to enter this port of Durban. Right. I think is the latest. And some figure. electronic problem <coughs> has made it impossible yeah, for this to happen. Yeah, they've got gantries that don't work and, and just the normal stuff. It's... Uh, I, I heard a, a very thoughtful man who's in charge of uh, one of the uh, in logistical uh, umbrella organizations saying it's a PPE problem. It's not a degree at Oxford, incidentally. He said it is personnel, it is uh, policy, and it is equipment, PPE. And so wow. while Cape Town so much better, say, than Joburg on you know roads and mm. municipal services – the port of Cape Town is a disaster. It's now imperiling our agri-exports. And the truth is that they won't give the province or the city of Cape Town jurisdiction over the ports that belongs to National. And I think without... National that, want the exclusive right to bugger it up themselves. Yeah, precisely. You put it so well. <laughs> so, And they're certainly not prepared to be... They'd rather not be shown up 
then allow things to function and work properly. And, and that's a very sad indictment. And we can take that particular trope and run it right through and across the length and breadth of South Africa. And uh, that's a problem. Look, on the other hand, uh, change is always possible. I was rather intrigued. My other country of interest is uh, Argentina, as you mentioned. I was mm. the ambassador. Did you see what happened there this week? Javier Millet. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I would apply. Bit of a lurch to the right. It's a lurch to the unknown. I mean, he is. Uh, oh, they're already saying he's far right. But you know, because anyone who's anything towards the centre from Marx these days is far right. Yeah. Look, he's a he is a he's an anarcho-capitalist libertarian. I think by his own definition. Bizarre hairstyle. Bizarre hairstyle, you know, tantric <laughs> sex man. Yeah. Uh, takes advice from his five uh, dogs, one of whom is cloned. Uh, he's an odd bloke. <laughs> but, <clears throat> you know, someone said, and, and strange enough, his opponent, who comes from the dreadful parent party, which is yeah. sort of South America's answer to the ANC, although um, has been in power on and off perhaps even for longer, the thing is that um, the the other candidate, Mesa, was not bad and by the parents' standards quite good and reasonable. But as someone, a friend of mine in Argentina wrote to me late last night, well, early in the evening there, he said to me, it's actually, although Malay is a, probably a lunatic, El Loco they call him, he said, you cannot win an election when the inflation rate is 144%. It's just not possible. And uh, that was what Mesa, the parentless candidate, was defending. But I, I thought to myself, well, I wonder if the ANC, given the disaster zone that South Africa is, can win the election next time as easily. And I hope that they don't, but who knows? You know, you, you bring up Argentina, and I, I wanted to save that for, for later in, in this discussion because it is something that you actually know quite a lot about. But there are two things I just want to get to straight away. First of all, you have outlasted and survived so many of the people who've been in politics in this country for as long as you have. And it wasn't a, 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 a kind of, you know, trying to be uh, kind and, 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 and gentle and generous and well-mannered when I said, you, you don't look like you've aged very much. You, you certainly are in better shape than many of your contemporaries in politics would, would being put on the same scale, I don't think very many of them will fare as well as you. They've taken a couple of really hard knocks over the years. You seem to be happy and contented and balanced and your life seems good. You're, you're, you're very happily married. You don't look your age. Uh, what do you think? That, is it getting out of politics that saved well, you? Well, I was going to say I got out in 2009. <laughs> I, I left the leadership of the party in 2007. Yeah. So quite a long time ago now, so it's uh, over 15 years I've been out of uh, public life formally. But, I, you know, I, I was very inspired, although he's a socialist, a remarkable man by a British uh, political grandee who died uh, at a great age called Tony Benn. He said, I've yes. left Parliament in order to devote more time to politics. So leaving <laughs> Parliament didn't mean you, well, you have to close, you know, your public participation. And I found quite meaningful ways to engage but I don't have to, and I, I was saying to your very impressive uh, colleague here, Lee Wolf, who's always chased me down for interviews at odd hours on mm. another radio station. You know, when you're not in public life and you, you don't have a formal responsibility, not being paid by you the don't taxpayer, have to. you don't have to say yes. So I think now the ability to pick and choose or indeed be asked by such distinguished uh, <laughs> uh, hosts like yourself 
is is a privilege, and I, I enjoy the fact that I can write and express my opinions, mm. and that I can you know talk at, at various uh, gatherings here and overseas, and that's been fulfilling. And also, the you know, and and doing other things because uh, the worst thing to me, I think Paul Johnson said in the his book. Uh, modern times, he said, the scourge of the 20th century is the rise of the professional politician. And um, although I was very young when I went to politics, I was actually an attorney and I'd been a mm. lawyer and a law lecturer. And I was just talking to some people last night when the DP you mentioned had only seven MPs yeah. out of 400. And that's where we built the revival of the yeah. position between 94 and 99. All seven of us, so we're sure we weren't remarkable, but we'd each done something else with our lives, although I at the time was in my You 30s weren't professional only. politicians. We weren't what we became yeah. because we spent time in parliament. But you know, one had been a headmaster, another had run a business, a third mm. was a very senior civil service, a fourth was a, news, a magazine editor, a fifth was a business, and the other, my colleague Doug Gibson, was also an attorney. So everyone had a hinterland of something else. And indeed, when they left parliament, they could go and do something else. I think one of the great dangers today here, and it's not confined to South Africa, but it's extreme in South Africa, is the uh, professional politicians. So I was looking at the moment of idleness. I have several more idle moments now than I've ever had. I was looking at some cabinet ministers, and to be quite honest, I'd never heard their names. They went around and I was around, which is oh. fine because they're younger and that's good. And I just looked through Wikipedia on a few of them, and not one of them, and there might be one or two, had done anything Had done else. anything except being entirely full-time for all their working lives, working for the ANC or working for a trade union. There was no <coughs> other point of reference. And now and, these and, folk are in charge of everything from the ports to the electricity. And you think, well. And the scary part is that they probably know that they wouldn't get work in the private sector if they didn't have their political yeah. job. And that's scary because it means that there's a desperation attached to it, right? There is, and also, you know, given the, I mean, eye-watering levels of debt in this country and the fact that we now, our debt servicing costs crowd on mm. every other <coughs> area of government activity, the extraordinary thing is that one of the figures that came out from the National Treasury, which incidentally is an island of excellence and a yeah. sea of dysfunctionality, probably along with the Reserve Bank, is <laughs> there are 55,000 public servants paid by the taxpayer, employed by the government, who earn more than a million rand a year, 55,000. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of doubled in a decade. Mm -hmm. So that shows you the the direction of the traffic. And those folk are not going to give up their entitlements, you know, anytime no. soon. And when people talk, you know, rather grandly about slimming down the state and reforming, you know, public services, forget about it. Those people have now the most vested of vested interests. Absolutely. Do you, when you come to Johannesburg and you see how things have deteriorated and when you see civil servants earning in excess of a million rand a year for doing very little, if anything, because you don't see the fruits of their labors. And that's what they officially earn. Do you get people who come up to you and say, oh, well, you, you're partly responsible for this because you had a hand in how things were and maybe you could have done X, Y, and Z? Or do you ever feel like there was more you could have done to arrest this ultimate fruition of the ANC's really bad cater deployment policies? Because you saw it early on. I, I saw it early on and called it out at a time when it was deeply unpopular to do so. You know, mm. I used to keep in my wallet, now afraid of gone, 
When we published, and I was the leader of the DP in about 1997, yeah. at that time, a document called All Power to the Party, which was actually authored by an extraordinary researcher. We had all our researchers were wonderful, but this chap, James Marburg, his editor of politics. He's terrific. Today. I've met him. So he was my researcher uh, in a very small parliamentary caucus. And the, the we brought this document called mm. All Power to the Party, and we catered diploma, just started. And we, it was a very well-justified document, facts and figures and what was going to happen and suggesting what would come to pass, which is now the complete dysfunctionality and seizing up of the state. And, you know, Business Day, which is, after all, uh, I've written for them for 10 years, so mm. I'm not dissing them, but that should be the paper of private enterprise. It's in 1997, wrote an editorial accusing us and me, the DP, of McCarthyism, <laughs> that we were – promoting, you know, red scare tactics, reds under the bed and that sort of thing. And I, I was, you know, I, I was troubled by that because I thought, well, we really are alone, you know, oh. a voice in the wilderness here. Of course, <clears throat> you know, sometimes being the voice in the wilderness eventually becomes a common consensus. You've just got to be prepared to tough it out. And so we did. And, and now everyone's saying that, uh, except for Sir Ramaphosa, that this Cayman mm. deployment's a disaster and all the areas of dysfunctionality you and I highlight earlier in this chat are a consequence of that in large measure. So, yeah, what could I have done more? Well, I think we called the – I don't want to say, you know, we were right and they were wrong, but I think we got the big calls right at critical moments and they didn't get much of a reception, but at least we put a flag in the sand or whatever the expression is and it has become something that people have rallied around later and it, it's gathered momentum. I was having a discussion the other day, Gareth, with an eminent journalist who's… Very few of those left. You know, he's pretty good, <laughs> this chap. No names, no pectoral. And I um, – and, you know, his, his news organization has really done a lot of exposés on, for example, the deputy president, Paul Muschietti and others. And I said, isn't it discouraging to you that you produce all this stuff? Because South Africa is one of those interesting sort of – well, it's dem democratic in the sense it all gets out there. Yeah. You, Gareth Cliff, yeah. you might be censored. You might be reported mm -hmm. to the Human Rights Commission, which was quite outrageous, as I remember. You might have been dethroned as a as a judge, pop idols, or whatever it was. But <laughs> they tried. you they can tried. actually say yeah. what you want to say, pretty yeah. much. And this newspaper can report what it reports, pretty yeah. much. So I said to the journalist, I said, but isn't it frustrating to you, which is kind of the same question you asked me, that nothing happens, that you put it out there, there's no follow-up. I mean, God forbid there should be a prosecution mm -hmm. or someone should go to jail, or even that the official, the state official, or officials should resign from office or be out. No, nothing happens. And he turned around to me and said, you know, that's not our job. Our job is to be the first draft of history. We've got to write it as it is and put the facts out there, and then it's for others to take it up whether they wish to or not. And I was thinking about that in a rather long-winded way to your question that you asked me earlier. And I thought, well, we put it out there. We told the truth as yeah. we saw it. And we can only, you know, if there are not many people listening or not many people voting for that truth. Maybe there'll be more in time to come. Look, I just wanted to give you a moment to say I told you so. Because <laughs> well. like, you did. And when you see how the DA has changed over the years, and you, you I mean, you and, and Helen did an enormous job in, in growing the DA's influence and taking from those seven seats to the many that they have now, possibly many more if they are managed properly from here on in. But opposition politics has become 
a much more powerful thing. Mm. And, you know, they, they, there was almost a disparaging kind of, oh, well, the, the, you know, Tony Leon, I remember they called you the Chihuahua. The yes, president called Johnny you a Delano. Chihuahua. Mm. And I thought, yeah, but this is what you need in a thriving, healthy democracy. Do you worry about the apathy that the voters have in South Africa? Because it keeps being said, and this was a registration weekend that we've just been through now, that more people chose not to vote, um, even registered people who chose not to vote in the last election, than voted for the ANC. Absolutely. And it says something about us. You know, they, they often say that you get the government you deserve. Is this what we deserve as people? Have we, have we earned this by being apathetic and lackadaisical? That's a very interesting question, and obviously we, we don't have the data, and we'll never have it, of why people don't vote or don't register. Although, just to pick up on your point, I, I did an article after the last general election, 2019, mm. and I worked out you'd need to be a statistical genius to do this, that of the total universe of possible voters, in other words, those who didn't, who were re, who didn't register, who could have, and those who were who registered did. and didn't vote, you add them together, agglomerate no. the total, the ANC, with all its mighty claims and, you know, will of the people, actually was elected by only 28% of the potential eligible voters in the country. It's a very small number. But, of course, they got… It's a, about the pass rate they've got from a trick at yeah, the moment. No, slightly even less than that, 2% <laughs> less. So, you know, it, 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 that tells a story. Why people don't vote? Now, you know, I think the danger of not voting is, I think it's perfectly legitimate, I must tell you. If, if, if you to use a well-known South African expression, are so gutful. Mm. Not just, you know, you, you don't think much of the government, you think not that much of the opposition, or, and this to me is the danger, but it, I think that is, explains it, you are so disillusioned with whatever fruits or that democracy appeared to offer that you opt out of the system entirely. So how many of those people who don't vote have just opted out? Not saying a plague on all your houses, the entire system just well, doesn't work. Isn't it true that that I think something like ninety five to ninety seven percent of our municipalities are bankrupt, which is or insolvent. That is to say that the people in those places yes. have given up on any kind of they live in an anarchy in any case. Yeah. And they have to do it for themselves or they have to hope some right. civil society organization steps in and fixes things up. So I think there's massive disillusionment. Look, I mean the question in any election is, given that a lot of people have, and I, I'm very suspicious of these IEC numbers when they say a million have registered. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't tell you is of that million, how many people are simply just changing their addresses or their locations rather than being new people yeah. entering the voting pool. I, I'd be more interested in that total when it becomes known. But, uh, you know, the, every election is really a question of turning out your voters. And if opposition voters in South Africa feel more empowered because the change is so important to go and vote and a lot of traditional ANC supporters feel disempowered because of the ANC's shocking performance mm. and it's blighted their lives and futures, mm. well, then a lower turnout actually can bring, bring a big change and a very, very radically different result. So I don't know. Uh, Do all... you have any strong feelings about coalition governments? Because this is the talk of the town at the moment. Everyone in South Africa realizes that if there is any likelihood of, you know, a, a, a semblance of a future for us, it's going to be in coalition politics. And how confident are you that the people <clears throat> in charge of all these parties can actually put aside their egos 
and for the for the benefit of South Africa, make decisions and come together and share power in a way that makes sense from a service delivery point of view, from a policy point of view. Do you think it's possible or is it pie in the sky? Well, it's very hard. That's a short answer. And listen, there are different coalitions. I mean, if the ANC does truly shockingly badly, as I hope they do, um, there's a possibility they'll join up with the EFF, in which yeah. case I would strongly recommend you and all your listeners to leave the country because yeah. I think the EFF will destroy what is remains of our state. There and, will be nothing left. And is will absolutely declare war. It's not that they will declare. They have declared war on a whole range of people who don't look like them. Um, and uh, they will carry it out. And because the ANC is so weak, they will just simply be the uh, adjunct to what the EFF wants to do. As you saw in Parliament last week on the Israel embassy closure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's rather pitiful sight. Yeah, if we have which is the governing party, follows meekly behind the EFF, which is not which is what it's not even the second, it's the third largest party in parliament, but they now uh, call the shots mm -hmm. uh, on our foreign policy and God knows what they'll do to our domestic policy if they get their hands on them. Well, we do know what they'll power. do, and, it, and it'll be things like nationalizing mines and yeah. banks and, uh, and stripping out the economy uh, from the inside. You mentioned Argentina. I mean, there's experience in Venezuela of what the EFF want to do, and we can watch the, uh, the, well, the, the, the results play out in real time. Well, Hugo Chavez is Malema's hero. Yes. By his own acknowledgement. Yes. So, you, as you say, there's the script's been written. Hmm. So, look, that's one extreme coalition option and certainly a possibility. The other is the suggestion I've heard that the DA and the ANC would join together, which I think would be good for governance. It would be very difficult. I think, don't know how good it will be for the DA because they've spent their life opposing the ANC and now they're cohabiting. But I mean, it would be a better option than the former. Oh, it's not, no, not even, not even it's incontestably sure. better. But then you get a range of other options, and that's the sort of rats and mice parties joined together with one of the bigger parties. And, uh, yeah, I, I, we've had very bad experience of that here mm -hmm. in Joburg, in Kuriléni, in Pretoria. It's, you know, it's been pretty uh, dire, and you see in Joburg just like the revolving door of mayors and speakers. Yeah. It's just it's political anarchy. But, you know, cometh the hour and all those other cliches, Gareth, I, I think the country's in such a advanced state of – decline and uh, disruption, that anything that changes the current narrative should be worked upon. And it won't happen without a lot of effort and work and mutual trust and all the things that are missing from our politics at the moment. But I hope it could happen because I, I don't think there's any realistic set of possibilities that after the next election, the largest party won't be the ANC. The big question is how low will the largest party go? And the lower they go, the more the opposition or the more the coalition prospects become brighter and that's what people are going to do so you know i think it's going to require a lot of work and thought i think there's some work and thought going on about it to try and learn from all the failed lessons of uh, recent times at a municipal level and let's see i think a bigger question isn't how the political heads might get on but you've got a public civil service which is completely I don't want to use the word infested Captured. because that sounds derogatory, but it is completely riddled with ANC-deployed cadres, and it's going to be very and hard. And the, the incentive structures are so perverse yeah. that they don't want to – they don't want to do a better job 
because there's no reason for them to do that. They're getting their increases anyway. Party loyalty is the reason they're there. And that's the reason they'll stay there. Plus, they've entrenched themselves to such a degree and sometimes for so long that everyone underneath them is terrified of them. You know, I, I don't hold any brief for her because we had a big falling out. But Patricia DeLille, and, you know, she's been co-opted, essentially a tiny party by the ANC. Mm. She's the Minister of Tourism. And I happen to know the person she appointed as interim chair of the tourism board, a guy called Tim Harris, used to be my mm. chief of yes, staff. Yes, I remember him. And he's, no, he's a very smart guy and he's very mm. effective. Anyway, to her credit, DeLille, who was in – you know, frog marched out of wherever she was, infrastructure, no doubt she wasn't allowing the comrades to feast enough and made the Minister of Tourism when they got rid of Lindivius Sudo. So she goes in there. SA Tourism is a complete mess. You're in that Tottenham Hotspur deal, yes. the whole disaster, corruption, whatever. She appoints him Harrison, two or three, two others, I think, as the interim board. And the moment they get appointed, there is a huge kind of smear campaign against them. And I, I don't know about the merits, but Tim is a very on-the-level chap, so I, yeah. Yeah, I can attest to his public probity. And uh, Dalil, to her credit, then says, hang on, this isn't, what, this isn't what it's about. It's about all the people who are about to be fingered in a, the corruption probes I'm doing, and yeah. the board is now going to be on my side, not against me, who are terrified, and they're just feeding this out there to uh, try and disable it from the start. Now, you just take – that's a microcosm – and Delil, whatever her merits and demerits, and I know both sides of that ledger, is not ANC. Mm. But you can just imagine a slew of ANC, non-ANC ministers getting into cabinet positions and bringing in DGs who have some competence and independence. And they're trying to do what she's trying to do with tourism. And you can just imagine the walls of resistance that are going to be erected against yeah. that. So – I think one thing is to have a kind of political, you know, good faith at the top, but right-sizing the state with this high level of entrenched ANC interests is going to be very difficult. It's going to be hard. But, you know, listen, Gareth, uh, hard things uh, are not impossible things. Well, I want to ask you about some of the international political things that are going on because you've seen this from the, the world that a diplomat occupies, which is very different to – being in parliament, it's also very different to being a writer and to being a consultant and all of these other things because people must ask you all the time, almost to the point where I'm sure it just exhausts you. But, you know, what do you think of what's happening in wherever? And we've mentioned Argentina, but the, the big story at the moment, and it's, it's not just big because it involves Israel and Gaza, and that's a talking point. It's big because this is the, 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 the small end of the wedge of, I think, what is probably a cultural war of civilization. And it's just unfortunate for Israel that they're at the leading edge of this and that they are the first ones to have to send men in to sort this out. Um, the world's changed enormously. There's an information war, which is almost more dangerous. And the, 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 the price for losing this information war is so high. We've seen it in Russia, Ukraine. Um, what do you think is really going on there? And, Clearly, the, the events of October the 7th need no explanation or justification. Um, I don't think either of us are going to sit here and try to justify what happened there. We can justify what happened afterwards if we would like. But this is not just about Israel, which is why I think everybody's being pulled in. I mean, social media has been on fire with this stuff for a month now. I completely agree with you. I think it's about a lot of things, but uh, 
the center point of it is that you talk about a civilizational war, I think can take you back, we, we were both very much around the time, to what happened on 9-11. Yeah. And what's very interesting about that, when Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden uh, operatives flew those planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, is almost the entire world, but I think the entire world, united in revulsion and Absolutely. in solidarity. Yeah. Literally from Vladimir Putin to Tabo and Becky. Yeah. I, I wrote a piece the other day just contrasting the stance of Tabo and Becky after 9-11, which yeah. was hugely supportive of the United States, deeply condemnatory of the terrorism yes. that occasioned that, with Surah nine-day silence over what Hamas had done in Gaza and then his equivocating, well, his different splitting trying to say there's a moral equivalence. What aboutism? And what aboutism? Uh, the, the rest of it's even more appalling. The ANC's response, the lady panel are just beyond the pale. But yeah. what I'm saying, let's yeah. not go down that rabbit hole. It's a, it takes a very dark and depressing place. But uh, Gareth, so on the one hand, why was there this huge solidarity of the world against the jihadist terror of 9-11? And there's so little of it now after the jihadist terror of 7 October. So I I think a number of reasons, and we don't have enough time to go into them. One is um, you talk about social media. I think critical race theory plays a huge role in this in the sense that Israel is seen as an outpost of white Western American uh, colonialism. It's all mad and ahistoric and Mm -hmm. not factual in the heart of Araby. If you subscribe to critical race theory, you say that oppressed people, and indeed Palestinians are oppressed. I don't, I think yep. life in Gaza is hell. I think life, yep. I've seen the life under occupation on the West Bank. It is terrible. I've, Israel's occupation there has done it no favors, and it's certainly done no favors to Palestinians. Why Israel continues to occupy, sure. how to end it, another story altogether. But the fact of the matter is that Palestinians are oppressed. It doesn't, according to critical race theory, they can therefore never terrorize other people. They can never be racist. They can never themselves possess anything except the purest innocence. Well, this whole whole idea of critical race theory and the oppressed-oppressor narrative is that it's so facile that it grants to one side absolute immunity. To, to anything, as you say, and the other side are just evil no matter how much they Precisely. try not to be. So just the starting point is, is, is that. And that, of course, has gained pace and traction and outlets. There was no social media to speak of at 9-11-2001. There were, this, these theories were there, but they hadn't been refined mm. to the extent. That, so and I think academia that, wasn't so infiltrated by these yeah. leftists. So I think that ideas. explains a lot of the background noise. That's one explanation. Yeah. On the other you know, what's happened is the world axes have shifted and you've got the United States, still the largest, most significant economic and military power in the world, but there's now a lot of contested space. You've got a revanchist Russia, mm-hmm. which is not in and of itself a significant power, except the damage it can do to countries like Ukraine and the nuclear weapons it possesses. And then you've got China asserting itself and China ever having had this miracle economic growth is now stuttering and going backwards economically, mm-hmm. but is wanting to flex its 
of its arms militarily. And so oh, but come on. Uh, Chairman Xi said uh, in San Francisco last week he has no ambitions no. for world domination no. or war or any of these things. He's, so those are just things that are about posturing. Yes, of course. No. Well, to take him at face value. And, no, uh, sure. You're a more naive person than I ever mm. gave you credit for being. <laughs> but you've got all these different, uh, all these different power centers. And, you know, the other thing in, in the world is we don't have very good leadership in any of the countries that no. are shocking. I mean, Israel has the worst prime minister I think it's had in 75 years. Who, you know, if you were going to choose the worst candidate to lead this country through arguably its greatest crisis in modern times, him, huh? it would be Bibi Netanyahu. You've got Joe Biden, who's 81. I mean, actually better president than he gets credit for, but is regarded with derision by a big chunk of American voters and will probably not win re-election. I think his, his uh, opinion poll ratings are No, it's are terrible. And, and the fact is you've got this amazing country, the United States, with it, all its problems, that you know, 320 million are giving a choice between Joe Biden and, and, Donald, and Trump. Donald Trump. I mean, but even but even, and, but even in Britain, I mean, we had Boris Johnson, who yeah. was a bit of a comical character. Yeah. If, to say, I'm being very charitable. Uh, Rishi Sunak just fired. Uh, Raverman. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Bra Raverman. Raverman. That's right. And brought back David Cameron. Mm -hmm. I mean, is is there that much of a of a, of a gap in leadership that we have to now bring back? I mean, I'm surprised they haven't called you up to ask well, you I, to come and take I up did, some role. I said to Mr. Steenhays and Lord Leon calling here, <laughs> text, so let me know when you want to recall me to yeah. the foreign ministry. Yeah, well, I'd be a better, but, but the, I'd be a much better foreign minister for South Africa than the current foreign minister. I'll for tell South you Africa. what. I mean, I, I that's probably <laughs> that's without without even trying, you could. Yes. But even Tabombeki, who was your adversary for a time, people hanker for the time of, of Tabombeki because we had growth. Yeah. You know and. Much as he may not have been perfect, no one is. I think people look at what we've got at the moment and they go, why were the leaders of 10, 12, 15 years ago just of a higher caliber in every sense than the ones we've got now internationally? I completely agree. With you. Look, the one person, stranger, I, I think, ironically, is I think Germany's been extraordinary. I mean, given the whole history. And, you know, someone said of Israel's current position, when you've got the backing of the big, of the most important country in the world, the United States, and the most powerful economy in Europe, Germany, you might have many enemies, but those are two significant Good friends, friends to, have. to have. Whether Israel can sustain it, because, <clears throat> you know, there are now yeah. so many people being killed in Gaza, I think there's got to be an end point sooner rather than later. But going back to the bigger question of leadership and this crisis, the one person who I think is very impressive is Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the Labour Party and likely to be the next Prime Minister of Britain on any basis. You think he is? I think he is for the following reason. It's much easier for Rishi Sunak, who leads the Conservative Party, to be pro-Israel and also to resist calls for a ceasefire in all it means. It's far more difficult for Keir Starmer as the leader of the Labour Party, where at least 30 constituencies have a, a significant Muslim vote presence, and a lot of them are very agitated about Labour not being on side. Mm. And to stand up to that is leadership. It's brave. Because yeah. leaders say no, not yes. Yes, leadership exactly is saying no, not yes, when you need to say no. Now, uh, so I, I'm impressed by instances of that kind of leadership. I'm also quite impressed with the woman who's, whom I've, I've, I've followed quite closely, or they don't agree with her on everything, who's standing against Trump, Nikki Haley. Yeah. Because, you know, on, on critical mass, she's, she's, she's Indian-born, mm -hmm. 
And she's a governor of a very deep red state, South Carolina. And, you know, she took on the Confederate flag issue and demanded it be taken down after one of those appalling racist attacks that you get in America from time to time. And I mean, she's pretty conservative. And obviously, mm. You and I wouldn't agree with her. Well, I don't know your views. I wouldn't agree with her on abortion. I, I wouldn't agree with her on thing, but on, on a range of social issues. But I think she showed, you know, good leadership at a difficult moment. And those are the things that you look for. Don't you think too much of politics has become internal polling and research surveys and things too, because in your day you had to follow a bit of a political instinct as well. I mean, you had researchers, you had people who were looking after these things, but you also had to make a decision and stand for something in a moment. And sometimes a speech was given off the cuff. You didn't always have time to, let's go and sound this out on Twitter first. You know, There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. I mean, I really, I sound like a fossil or a caveman. No, but the, the, this is why I, we wonder I, well, about was, the leaders of the past. I was a political yeah. leader before the social media age. So if you left in 2007, when mm-hmm. I did the leadership in 2009 Parliament, you almost had no social. The cell phone was the big thing. Right. Like, and I remember my old colleague, Colin England, being quite amazing. You're on the phone all the time. My day used to sort of dictate and, you know, they'd publish it 20 hours. I said, well, it doesn't work like that anymore, Colin. Well, it certainly doesn't work like that. Now, I think that's a fact. I remember in 99, we got some money for the first time for our election campaign when we became the official opposition. Yeah. We uh, had so much, We had enough money to first time employ proper polling, and it was very interesting. That's how we got the fight back slogan, incidentally, which caused yes. a lot of notoriety. I remember the fight back. Yes, yeah. through 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 a, a focus group in Chatsworth and Durban is the origin of that slogan. Anyway, but we had these professionals. We never had them before, and it was very interesting, and it helped focus our campaign. But up until then, we hadn't, and you did have to rely on not just your instinct, but also having a set of principles. I think. A young MP came to see me the other day for some advice, and she was really very good on this issue, but she's a bit sort of anxious. And I said, you've got to stiffen your spine. I said, once you do the right thing and you stand for the right things and you and you put it out there, you must get flack because people don't respond well to having a contrary viewpoint that's well expressed and, and grounded in firm principle being expressed against their interests or against their prejudices. And she's quite surprised that I said stiffen your spine because, you know, I think, well, God knows I'm on the wrong side of 65. But, I mean, I think a lot of younger people today are, apart from being over-influenced by social media, they, they, they have an exquisite oversensitivity, which is either real or in many cases manufactured. And yeah. all this just makes it much more difficult to lead in any organization or country or polity or whatever it is. And those who prepare to go against that grain are rare. And some of them, you know, uh, will perhaps not be re-elected. I never forget there was a head of the European Commission of the EU some years ago. He said, you know, we know exactly what we need to do to enact the economic reforms needed to revive our economies. The only question, we don't know how to do it and to get re-elected. <laughs> well, I always love spending time with you and I, I, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but I know you have uh, limited time in Johannesburg. So let's do this again. Absolutely. It's always great to catch up with you. You're still, to my mind, as relevant as ever, despite the fact that you're not in the public space. And your take on these things is probably more valuable than a lot of the so-called analysts out there. So I really appreciate your time and thank you, Tony Leon, for coming. Thanks to very much and great strength, Gareth. I think you thank do you. amazing 
work here in uh, just putting out views and expressing opinions that are so relevant. You let me know if I need to stiffen my spine. <laughs> you don't need any spine. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.